Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today's story begins with two photographs. The first was taken in 1933, or maybe 1935. A man in a hat straddles a bike next to a young woman, her platinum blonde hair and thick lipstick signaling floozy, her rumpled white suit signifying something else. Neither subject of this photograph looks terribly happy to be having the moment captured for posterity. This photo, which I've seen variously labeled as having been taken either in Palm Springs or Palm Beach, is of Howard Hughes and his teenage girlfriend at the time, Ida Lupino. When the photo was taken, Ida Lupino was a starlet, literally fresh off the boat from England. She always said that when Howard Hughes, millionaire independent film producer and notorious playboy, would take her out on dates, her mother would chaperone. Ida's mother is nowhere to be seen in this picture. The second photograph was taken sometime around 1950. It's of a full-grown woman, a brunette, her arms folded in business-like fashion over her chest, a lit cigarette between her fingers. She gazes determinately off into the distance. To her left stands a massive film camera. This also is a photograph of Ida Lupino. By the time this one was taken, Lupino had started directing films, indies that dealt with taboo subjects like rape, polygamy, and polio. By that time, Howard Hughes was no longer her boyfriend. He was the head of the studio that released her movies. How did this teenage Cupid doll morph into the only prominent female film director of her day? And what did Howard Hughes, and the other loves of her life, have to do with it? Join us, won't you, as we explore the life, work, and many loves of Ida Lupino. The Lupino family had been performers going back for centuries. Ida was born in 1918 to actor-comedian Stanley Lupino, who made the transition from vaudeville to silent film comedy when Ida was a child, and Connie Emerald Lupino, who was billed as the fastest tap dancer alive. Her parents were always on stage, on tour, or at rehearsal. For Ida, putting on a costume and putting on a show was the only life she knew. One day, when Ida was seven, she put on old, tattered clothes and went door-to-door in her neighborhood, begging for change, claiming she had been starved and beaten at home. I believed my own lies completely, she'd say later, so that others believed me. Her father once admitted to her that when her mother was pregnant, both parents had prayed that the baby was a son. Instead, they got a headstrong daughter of many talents, Stanley recognized that Ida was special. I think you're going to end up doing what my son would have done, Ida's father told her. You will write, direct, and produce. First, he coached her to act naturally, without the affectations that plagued many child actors. Ida talked her way into her screen debut, a walk-on in one of her father's films. Twelve years old, she was sure she had found her calling, and convinced her parents to let her quit school. Her father relented, on the condition that she could stay out of school for as long as she could keep herself employed. She never went back. Hollywood lore has it that Ida Lupino earned her first big movie role due to a cruel accident of nepotism. Accompanying her mother to an audition, 
Ida was spotted by director Alan Duan, who decided he wanted the 14-year-old for the part instead of her 40-year-old mother. This seems unlikely, given that the part in a film called Her First Affair was that of a nymphette, besotted with an older man. And in fact, some biographies say that Duan saw Ida in a stage production and called her agent. In any case, her first affair, in which the far-from-legal Ida pranced about in a skimpy white negligee, was a hit in both England and America, and soon Ida was deluged with offers from Hollywood studios. After shooting another couple of features in England, Ida Lupino accepted an offer from Paramount to come to Los Angeles and become their newest contract player. Paramount had eyes on Ida to play the lead in their upcoming production of Alice in Wonderland. Ida had other ideas. 15-year-old Ida Lupino and her mother took a boat to New York, where a Paramount limo was waiting to pick them up and take them to the Waldorf Astoria. As she was being hustled into her first press conference, a publicist whispered in Ida's ear, Now you are 16. On to Hollywood. The morning after she arrived, a photo of Ida, dressed in a cape and a kicky beret, appeared on the cover of the Los Angeles Times. The Times reported that Ida was the leading candidate amongst 50 hopefuls in the race to play Alice. Ida submitted to a wardrobe test, but she didn't actually want the part. I've never been Alice's age, she said. You cannot play naive if you're not. Once the photos came back, it was clear that Ida was too mature to play a lost little girl. Instead, Paramount set to work molding Ida into a British Jean Harlow. Platinum blonde coif, sex pot bod, and all. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This was fine with Ida, who thought it was way more fun to play slutty than innocent. But after a few films, it became clear that Paramount had no intention of giving her a chance to do any serious acting. Already unhappy, in June 1934, Ida contracted polio. Six days into the illness, she worried she would never walk again. Ida contemplated suicide. She recovered, but continued to be frustrated with the parts Paramount tried to foist on her. A near-death experience was not entirely a bad thing for Ida Lupino. The Lupino family was highly shall we say, spiritual, meaning that they felt that they were in touch with the spirit world. They were matter-of-factly convinced that their London home was haunted. Stanley would have casts made of dying relatives' hands and then use the cast to try to contact the dead. Even as an adult, Ida felt that she and her father shared what she called a psychic feeling. During her first year in Hollywood, when Ida found out that her first sweetheart had died in a biking accident, her predisposition to supernatural belief made the grieving process especially tough. She said her dead boyfriend would appear in her room at night and they'd have long conversations, ending with him pleading with her not to feel lonely. Lonely, she was not. History has not recorded how or where Ida met Howard Hughes, who was 13 years her senior, divorced, and in 1933, 
in the middle of an epic Playboy period. He wasn't the only one seeing other people. Ida was a very popular girl. Was it love? Probably not, but it was something. Hughes insisted on throwing his new paramour a party for her big 16th birthday. Accustomed to high-maintenance women, Hughes promised Ida he'd give her a bottle of Chanel perfume. I don't want perfume, she said. Well, what do you want? Binoculars, she said. Why do you want binoculars? Hughes asked at his response. So I can look at the stars. The relationship didn't last, obviously. And in 1938, at the age of 20, Ida married actor Lewis Hayward. The two bought a big house off of Sunset Boulevard, which Ida gleefully reported was built over an ancient Indian burial ground. They'd host raucous dinner parties, and after dinner Ida would sometimes surprise her guests by playing tapes of them in conversation, which she had secretly recorded over dinner. Other times she would lead her guests through an impromptu ballet, weaving through the home by candlelight. Ida was becoming known as one of Hollywood's premier eccentrics. By this time, Ida had left Paramount in frustration. She dropped the faux Jean Harlow look they had foisted on her and fell into a deep depression as her phone failed to ring. She made a couple of movies for Columbia, but Harry Cohn wasn't attracted to her, so he didn't really know what to do with her. She worked a lot in radio plays, and finally, in 1939, barged into William Wellman's office and convinced him to cast her in his Kipling adaptation, The Light That Failed. Gritty, substantial, and mature in a way that her previous films hadn't been, The Light That Failed showed Hollywood a new side of Ida Lupino, and suddenly, she was in demand again. She signed a new contract with Warner Brothers and had a string of hits. They Drive By Night, High Sierra, Moontide. Short and slim with big brown eyes, on screen, Ida Lupino had a face that seemed by turns patrician and hard. She wasn't conventionally beautiful, and that almost worked to her advantage. Depending on her styling, she could be sexy or plain but lovable. This worked for wartime America. By the beginning of 1941, Ida Lupino was Hollywood's hottest star. Then, in June 1942, Ida's father, Stanley, died. His prediction rang in her ears. When would she write and direct her own film? Meanwhile, World War II raged on. The Lupino family home in London was destroyed by bombs. Ida's husband, Lewis, was sent into combat, heading a photographic unit in the Pacific, capturing grisly footage of the battle at Tawara. He was sent home for Christmas in 1943, but he carried with him a debilitating case of post-traumatic stress. Over the next few months, Lewis was treated for depression at a number of different hospitals. Finally, he hit a breaking point. Ida's husband told her that he wanted to start a new life without her. In May 1944, they were divorced. And then, Ida Lupino started her own new life, beginning by moving into a new manse on Beverly Drive. Officially, the occupants of the house were Ida, her mom, her sister Rita, and several pets. Unofficially, the house acted as a kind of clubhouse for Ida's friends like Errol Flynn, David Niven, Bing Crosby, and Clark Gable, all of whom knew where their hostess kept the hide-a-key and would let themselves in whether or not the lady of the house was at home. 
Depending on her call times and who would come calling when, sometimes Ida would sleep all day. Other times she'd rise at midnight and invite friends over for sunrise cocktails. Like just about everyone else in Hollywood, her days and nights were bookended by sleeping pills and pep pills. She was not exactly an iron woman. In the midst of the separation from her husband, Ida suffered a nervous breakdown. After the divorce was finalized, while on a grueling tour of military hospitals, she strained a stomach muscle and was diagnosed with exhaustion. Her illnesses caused delays on her movies. After a few more films, Ida and Warner Brothers became mutually dissatisfied with her contract. The studio wanted her to be under their control, exclusively, for seven years although they were willing to settle for four. But Ida didn't want to be exclusive. She didn't want to be a slave to Jack Warner. She refused to sign a long-term contract. At the end of January 1947, Ida cleaned out her Warner Brothers dressing room. She was bitter, sure, but if she was being honest with herself, she was kind of over movie acting. She needed a new challenge. Around this time, Ida began seriously dating Collier Young. Collie, as he was called, was an assistant to Harry Cohn, a self-styled intellectual who dreamed of writing and producing his own movies. Collie and Ida bonded over their shared desire to make a film out of a novel called The Dark Love. Charles Feldman, an agent who was desperate to bag Ida as a client, bought the rights to the novel and sold them to Fox, with the stipulation that Ida must star. Fox agreed. They retitled the film Roadhouse, and this nightclub love triangle noir was a massive success. And shortly after its release, Ida and Collie Young were married. They bought a new house, and this one had a sign outside. Visitors, don't drop in. Please call first. One night, she met Roberto Rossellini at a party. The Italian neorealist said something that made Ida think. In Hollywood movies, a star is going crazy, or he drinks too much, or he wants to kill his wife, he said. When are you going to make pictures about ordinary people in ordinary situations? At that point, Ida didn't know when it would happen. But she was starting to feel like she had to be the one to do it. In the 1940s, there was some precedent for women directing movies. Some, but not much. Dorothy Arzner was the only female member of the Directors Guild, and she hadn't worked since 1943. No one was going to hand Ida Lupino a directing job. She was going to have to create an opportunity for herself, and being in the right place at the right time wasn't going to hurt. In 1949, a story came along the transom. A good story. A story about unwed mothers. Malvin Wald wrote a script, Ida made a few of her own tweaks to the draft, and then Collie took it to Harry Cohn with the hopes that his boss and mentor would give him a chance to produce his first film at Columbia. But Harry Cohn refused. He didn't want to have anything to do with a movie about unwed mothers. And more than that, he believed subordinates should know and stay in their place. In a huff, Collie quit his job at Columbia. Instead of taking this as a sign of her husband's weakness when it came to business, Ida took this as more proof that guys like Harry Cohn wanted to enslave their employees rather than enrich them. So, the couple independently produced, not wanted, a cheapy feature about unwed mothers. At this time in history, inexpensively made movies about taboo subjects were often exploitative by design. 
But Not Wanted was not going to be the next Reefer Madness. Inspired, apparently, by Rossellini, Lapina was determined to make what she called documentary movies, narrative films informed by actual situations and events, dramas staged with as much realism as possible. Not Wanted was not supposed to be Ida Lapino's directorial debut. She wasn't even in the Directors Guild yet, but the chosen director of the film, Elmer Clifton, had a heart attack right before shooting started, and he ended up convalescing in his director's chair for most of the shoot, while Ida told the actors and technicians what to do. She also proved from the gate to be an extraordinarily resourceful indie film producer. The lead actress's wardrobe came from Ida's own closet. To shoot interiors, she salvaged a standing set from a just-wrapped John Garfield picture, repurposing each wall as the backdrop for a different scene. She didn't take credit for directing, but the ads for the film traded on her celebrity, branding the film as Ida Lupino Presents Not Wanted. Not Wanted cost $150,000 to make. By April 1950, it had grossed $1 million. It wasn't just a popular success. Hollywood insiders went nuts for it. Joan Crawford demanded that a print be sent to her house. When Ida's publicist, who had invested in the movie, received his first check, he went out and bought a brand new car. He drove it over to Ida's to show it off. Well, she said, thank God for knocked up girls, eh? With the success of Not Wanted, Ida, Collie, and screenwriter Marvin Wald started their own production company, called Filmmakers. The mandate was to produce films of sociological importance. They specifically declared that there would be no melodramas, no westerns, and no musicals. Their next film, based on Ida's own struggles with polio, was tough to get off the ground, and Ida took an acting job in a noir called Women in Hiding because she needed the money. Her co-star in the film was Howard Duff, the star of the popular radio serial The Adventures of Sam Spade. Ida and Howard Duff hated each other at first, but his roguish charm soon won her over, and she eventually rented a house in Malibu at which to meet with him. She was having problems with Kali. They had trouble transitioning from squabbling, perfectionist business partners to lovey-dovey newlyweds at the end of the workday. And she was tempestuous, as Kali put it, Things aren't normal unless Ida resigns three times on every picture, once before it starts and twice during production. And then it started to become clear that Kali was basically incompetent as a producer. An investor dropped out of the polio movie at the last minute, and Kali never lined up a replacement, meaning Ida, who had already drained her own savings into the budget, would be responsible for an additional $65,000 loan. Kali was unable to sell the finished movie to independent theater owners. The polio movie bombed, and Ida lost all of that money. Luckily, there was an old face from her past with very deep pockets waiting in the wings. Howard Hughes had taken over RKO Studios in 1948 and immediately started decimating the workforce, firing story editors, canceling the contracts of actresses he deemed unattractive, and shutting down productions that clashed with his personal taste. By 1950, he was searching for cheap content to repopulate his production slate, and he was impressed by Not Wanted. He liked his ex-girlfriend's direction, but more than that, he liked the idea of down-and-dirty movies implicitly about sex that both passed the censors and made a ton of money. 
Ida and her partners met with Hughes and told him their next project would be about rape, to which Hughes said, I like it. Ida still found Hughes charming, although she was wary of his killer business instinct. She got him to verbally agree that his creative input would be limited to approval on one-paragraph story synopses. Then, she let her husband do the rest of the negotiating. That was a terrible mistake, because Collie was terrible at his job. Only once the deal was done did Ida find out that Hughes had wrangled total control over both the content of the movies and most of their profits. Ida was devastated. She was a professional, so she'd go to work for Hughes, with Collie, but she didn't have to stay married to the man who sold her into slavery. In December, Ida filed for her second divorce. Ida's first film under contract to Hughes was the rape victim drama Outrage. The film opens with a masterful six-minute sequence in which the heroine is followed down darkened streets by a strange man. The attack itself was mostly implied, but the lead-up to it is terrifying. Hughes promoted this serious social drama by inviting journalists to a series of boozy junkets. That worked, and the movie was a hit. Ida had a good relationship with her new overlord. She was the only member of her production outfit who could deal with Hughes directly. She even had his private phone number, maybe the only commodity in Hollywood that money couldn't buy. But she still couldn't get Hughes to approve most of her earnest sociological concepts. An adaptation of a novel about the prejudice faced by Mexican-Americans? Boring. A domestic drama about a war veteran who returns home sterile? Not sexy. A period piece about the development of the atom bomb? Hughes wasn't going to greenlight anything that threatened to jeopardize his defense contracts. The story of a nubile young tennis player and her struggles with her domineering mother? Mommy Issue Plague sports fan Hughes declared, I like it. He also retitled it from Loving Cup to Hard, Fast, and Beautiful. The partnership with Howard Hughes was never going to make her rich, but she had successfully remade herself from dizzy starlet into legitimate filmmaker. She was now openly dating Howard Duff, but he was reluctant to settle down. He was also, to be fair, a little distracted, given that he was being targeted by the House Un-American Activities Committee as a reported communist. Duff was barely even a committed liberal, but his actual politics didn't matter. He was fired from his radio serial, without ceremony or even explanation, and subsequently blacklisted. The committee also targeted Ida's good friend, John Garfield. Ida wanted to help Garfield by casting him in a movie, but Howard Hughes wouldn't allow it. Howard Hughes, whose non-movie businesses depended on his political contacts like Richard Nixon, was systematically trying to purge RKO of anyone tainted by suspicion. If Hughes couldn't get rid of them, he humiliated them. Hughes forced Melvin Douglas, then a huge star, to appear in On the Loose, a juvenile delinquent pick written by Ida and Kali, which Ida had decided not to direct. It was unheard of for a star of his caliber to appear in such a low-budget movie. But Hughes was upset that Douglas's wife, Helen, was challenging Nixon for his Senate seat. If the Douglases were against Nixon, they must be pinkos. And pinkos must be punished. Ida's final directorial effort released by RKO would be The Hitchhiker, a noir based on the crimes of real-life killer William Cook, which is now considered a classic. After that, Collie convinced Ida that they should distribute their next feature themselves. 
It was a huge risk, but it would mean a much bigger share of the profits. And so, 20 years after they first started dating, Ida Lupino's relationship with Howard Hughes was over. Ida had finally been able to gain the upper hand with the other Howard in her life. In mid-1951, she found out she was pregnant. Duff proposed, and they stayed married for over 30 tumultuous years, albeit with many fights and separations in between. For reasons no one around her could quite figure out, Ida was incredibly devoted to her third husband, and apparently afraid to lose him. Throughout the 1950s, Ida turned down several good projects because there was no role for Howard Duff. Things got worse when Duff got into a bar fight, and the headlines referred to him as Ida Lapino's mate. Weirdly, Ida failed to find a part for her current husband in her next directorial effort, The Bigamist, a movie about a man with two wives, which was written by Ida's second husband and ongoing business partner, Collie Young, which starred Ida and Collie's current wife, Joan Fontaine. With The Hitchhiker, Lapino had become the first woman to direct a film noir. With The Bigamist, she became the first actress to star in a major feature in which she directed herself. Both films adopted classic noir tropes, but they turned the usual gender dynamics of the genre around. In Lapino's noir, the men were dangerous, deceptive, and seductive. Homes fatale, if you will. But once again, Kali proved to be a shitty businessman. The distribution gamble he suggested failed when The Bigamist, which was well-reviewed, failed to get into enough theaters to make money at the box office. In the interest of putting her marriage first, Ida then hired Don Siegel to direct her and Howard Duff in a script she wrote, Private Hell 36. Siegel said he had a hell of a time working with Mr. and Mrs. Lapino, who he wrote off as talented, but pretentious and alcoholic. By the time the movie had finished, filmmakers, the production company, had fallen apart. Ida felt getting into distribution was their one fatal mistake. The Bigamist would be the last feature film that Ida would direct for 13 years. In the 1950s, like Barbara Stanwyck, Joan Crawford, and other golden era actresses who were aging out of Hollywood desirability, Ida turned to television. Unlike those other actresses, Ida Lupino both acted and directed for the small screen. Her behind-the-TV camera career encompassed episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Untouchables, The Fugitive, and Gilligan's Island. And she had a few good movie roles left in her, too, particularly in Robert Aldrich's The Big Knife. Then, she and Duff starred together as a movie star couple in 66 episodes of a CBS sitcom called Mr. Adams and Eve. The show playfully mocked Ida and Howard's own tabloid fodder relationship. Ida fueled speculation that the sitcom was in fact a comic documentary by claiming that the scripts were 60% true. Ida tried to direct episodes of the show, but... The mere suggestion of her taking on such a role, and thus making her husband subservient to her, caused marital headaches. Later, the pair shot an episode in which Lupino's character, Eve, is directed by none other than Ida Lupino. Ida played both roles, using Patty Duke-style split screens. Howard's character was disdainful of Ida Lupino, the director. One aspect of the show absolutely ripped from real life. After their sitcom was canceled, Ida would continue to appear in and direct TV. 
and his wife's work success would continue to rankle Howard Duff. Until the pair finally, officially separated in 1973. They didn't actually divorce until 1984, though, and some reports suggest Howard remarried long before that, making him an off-screen analog to the bigamist that Ida wouldn't let him play on screen back in 1954. In October 1959, Ida Lupino, great movie star and earnest believer in the supernatural, starred in an episode of The Twilight Zone called The 16mm Shrine. She played Barbara Trenton, a star of the 1930s who was aged out of popularity, who locks herself in her mansion, watching her old movies on loops all day long. Nothing at all strange or unexplained happens for the first two-thirds of the episode. At one point, Barbara's agent, who's trying to help her, brings to the house an actor with whom Barbara had often been romantically paired on screen. She takes a look at her now elderly co-star and recoils in horror. You think, for a moment, that this might be the spookiest thing that happens in the episode, that a woman obsessed with the movie's ability to freeze time is forced to confront the truth in the literal face of age. But no, a few minutes later, in her screening room, Barbara stares into one of her old films and makes a wish. I wish I could be there with you. I wish I could be up there with you. I wish. Oh, I wish. Suddenly, she's transported into the screen. Her maid and her agent are horrified. But Barbara has never been happier. Barbara Trenton was not based on Ida Lupino. Ida Lupino hated watching herself, hated the way she looked, especially as she aged, and Ida Lupino didn't live in the past. If she did, maybe she would have been happier. Instead, she kept working, earning her last credit as a director in 1968 and as an actress in 1978. She put in another few good years on the tribute circuit, but the relationship with Howard Duff had aged her and turned her into a drunk, and when he finally left her, she struggled, not knowing how to define her own worth in the absence of the love of a man. Her friends started dying, and that was hard. And then her mother died, and from that, Ida never really recovered. She holed up at home, drinking, all but disappearing from public life. She died of cancer in 1995 at the age of 77. Ida Lupino was, without question, a pioneer, not just as a female filmmaker, but as an independent filmmaker. Unfortunately, what she was able to accomplish behind the camera and in front of it was shaped and limited by the men in her life, from Collie Young to Howard Duff and, yes, Howard Hughes, who came back into her life and supported her as a director, but also cheated her, and in doing so, cost Ida her second marriage. She made incredible strides for women in the film industry, maybe more significantly, made films which told women's stories that were not otherwise being seen on screen. You could blame the gal for following her heart, but that would make you a dick. You could say Ida Lupino was just a modern woman trapped in an era that wasn't ready for her, which I guess would be accurate, but even today, how many female filmmakers make it through a career without having to compromise or capitulate to a man in charge, or without bumping up against a conflict between the person they want to be at work and the person they want to be at home. How many women in any industry get to avoid that? 
No one wants to remember Ida Lupino as a female filmmaker who didn't get to do as much as she wanted because the men in her life held her back. So let's remember her as the strong critic of the Hollywood power structure that she was, and that she played in Robert Aldrich's The Big Knife. In this scene, Ida's character Marion tries to convince her movie star husband, played by Jack Palance, to walk away from a new contract in order to save his soul. I'm as human as the next one, and it's a fabulous deal, but it's for seven years, and the life that goes with it. Or should I say the death that goes with it? Look at yourself. You're half dead right now. What's happened to your mind, your spirit, your soul? Charlie Cass, the guy I married, he was a tiger. You liked to argue because you believed in things. And what you believed in, you fought for. And that was Charlie Cass. What do you believe in now? Oh, Charlie, I don't want you to sign that contract. You've given the studio their pound of flesh. You don't owe anything. I'm Federated's biggest star. I'm worth millions a year to them, and ice cold profits. He won't let me go. You know why. Well, tell him you're leaving Hollywood for good. You know that this this industry is capable of turning out good pictures, pictures with guts and meaning. Sure, sure. And we know some of the men who do it: Stevens, Mankiewicz, Kazan, Houston, Wyler, Wilders, Stanley Kramer, but never Stanley Hoff. Never. Not once, not for the life of him, not for all the pompous press statements. Stanley Hoff will personally produce War and Peace by Tolstoy. Yeah, sure, that'll be the day. <laughs> Starring Charlie Castle with a bullwhip in one hand. And a bleached blonde in the other. Thanks for listening to another episode of You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth, that's me, and Noah Segan played Howard Hughes. In two weeks, we'll bring you another chapter in the saga of the many loves of Howard Hughes. But first, next week, we return to our series on the film, stars, and scandals of 1938. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Mistakes. I think I lay you late. Now every slipper sand seemed to come my way. But I've never seen a starlet or a riot or the violence of you. I am the autumn in the scarlet. I am the makeup on your.